Welcome to Packet Pushers. In today's sponsored show, we're talking with White Spider with some stories from the field. That's right. Really smart engineers at White Spider and Cisco have been implementing real technology, SD Access and ACI. So we're going to get down in the trenches with some uh, stories about their experience of delivering those technologies. Prepare to get your hands all dirty in the real world today on this Priority Queue. Now, what do I mean by dirty? Now, White Spider has been delivering Cisco solutions for a few years now to customers. And what we wanted to do is to share some of their experiences, their successes and lessons learned about actually doing this in the real world. You know that Packet Pushes, we really try and get out there and, and get past the marketing and into the details as much as possible. So joining us today is Jonathan Perossi. He's the head of architecture at White Spider. And Phil Lees is the chief technology officer from White Spider. White Spider is a reseller in the EU. And uh, they've been deploying for some of the biggest customers out here. And we've got, got a bunch of case studies to cover over today. And just to make sure that we're, we're covered in deep with some deep technical background, we've got Max Artica, who's a principal engineer from Cisco with a focus on Cisco ACI. Now, just a note, all of our guests hail from Europe today, which uh, for those of us who are sensitive to accents, it's going to be a bit different from usual because we've all got the fun accents. Let's just get straight into the action. Oh, uh, one last thing, www.whitespider.eu slash PP. There's a bunch of information and case studies that related to what we talk about today. So if you're interested in more information, www.whitespider.eu slash PP. All right, let's get into talking about uh, things from the field. Now, what happens is White Spider recently worked with a motor racing team and we put together a case study, there's actually, and that's actually the website where you can go and see it, where they talked about getting Cisco ACI deployed there. So let's kick off with a discussion around how, why was ACI going to fit for the motor racing team? Hi, Greg. Thanks for that. So um, motor racing is, is an industry, you know, enormously competitive, uh, you know, milliseconds matter. And every investment that they make in technology has to be focused around making that car go quicker around a track, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So the, the organization we've worked with, um, you know, we worked with them for quite a few years, actually, you know, days before White Spider. And they've kind of gone through the full, uh, I guess, range of data center technologies, you know, from the old three-tier days of, you know, Catalyst 65s, that kind of thing, through the Nexus 7000s and 55s. And, you know, using those technologies, you know, they've kind of really kind of grown out of that data center. So the numbers of times that they make changes to equipment has a, a dramatic effect on how long outages are, that kind of thing. So they were looking at higher speed throughput for a, a, a new data center uh, architecture, but they're also looking at... Um, technology that allowed them to make um, uh, fewer changes or, or, or changes in, in, in a much quicker time um, mm. to make them more operationally efficient, I guess, if you like. So, you know, rather than touching 10 things 10 times, we can touch one thing once and it goes out and does all the kind of automation for us. So this is this idea of automating the network. So instead of, you know, hand, hand crafting um, an artisanal configuration for every single activity that you want to do. It's much more about, you know, pulling the big lever and it stamps the big thing down and bang, the network configuration's done. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's exactly that. You know, everyone talks about automation, orchestration, these kind of kind of industry kind of bingo terms, if you like. But you know, mm. doing it in reality, you know, there's kind of real benefits to be had from it. And ACI delivered that in spades. You know, um, you know, being able to kind of create the policy centrally and then push that down to, you know, any number of different ACI leaves and spines was, you know, that was a real kind of game changer for them. 
So one of the things about ACI is it can be a little complex when you first front up. You know, you've got the leaf spine that can be a bit new for people and then you've got the software. You can't touch the switches yourself. ACI does most of the work there. How did the, how did the customer come up to that? Were they willing to embrace that and say that's just the way it works and get stuck in or did you have to get them to come with you on the journey as they say in sales? Yeah, you're right. It's you know it's a real paradigm shift in the way that you deploy infrastructure, the way you deploy networks. You know, from being command line junkies to being, you know, more policy based. You know, it's a very different kind of way about working. Now, you know, the the F1 industry, they've got some very bright guys there, and you know, this particular client's no different. You know, yeah. they invest quite highly in their research, in, in their uh, in, in the guys. So, them switching to a a policy based, almost programmatic way of doing things was you know relatively slick and easy, to be honest. Mm. And how long did it take you then? So I imagine that one of, one of the things about Cisco ACI that I really, really like is it actually turns the network into a platform. And so instead of treating it as like each switch is a unique sort of piece of the system and you have to bring them all together, is ACI says it's just a platform and we got it the way it is. If you're building a platform, though, everybody's got to run on your platform. So what was it like for in the business, there's different teams. How hard was it to then bring them into the ACI and to use that platform? JP, do you want to pick this one up? Yeah, so I, I think that was a, an, an evolutionary uh, approach that uh, that the particular motorsport company t- took. Um, in, t- in terms of you know the the influence inside the business and how uh, organizational units within that business had adopted the technology, it, w- it was a process that didn't happen overnight. Um, but it was a process that when benefits were being seen they were rapidly adopted inside the business so they were evaluating technologies such as hyper-converged infrastructure um, and hyper-converged infrastructure allowed them to witness massive compute and and storage changes inside the business Uh, and and as soon as that started turning uh, results for the business other organizational aspects started to adopt and embrace the capabilities that, that ACI brought. Um, you know, in terms of it spreading from from uh, you know, the, the data center um, to, to to test and development to potentially to to futures with Trackside. Um, so the ability to rapidly deploy became hugely important inside inside the the motorsport company. Mm. And I would add on my side, right, uh, having my Cisco hat on, that I, I would agree with what you guys said and also what, Greg, you were inferring, which mm. is, you know, it, it, it needs, maybe there is, compared to traditional networking, with ACI, you have an initial learning curve that you need to have, but the return of investment that you achieve one after that initial learning curve, it's actually amazing because of the reason you mentioned, right, that it, basically you're dealing with a platform more than with a network. But at the same time, and that's what customer in and customer out there figuring out. The, mes- the messaging oh. at the beginning was a little bit confusing, right? Yeah. Application-centric alienated most of the networking guys, right? They were yeah. like, oh, this is not for me. I know nothing about application, right? And I'm sure the West Spider guys are saying the same thing. In the end of the day, ACI is also a fabric. It's a network. Yeah. It's a VXLAN VPN-based network and can actually be used as a VXLAN VPN network with a strong single point of management, right? So I also see customers that they start adopting like that and then they move into the more advanced functionality, programmability, automation in a second moment. So it allows you to get to the SDN 
but at the pace that you want, right? And that's probably what also happened with this global racing thing, I would say. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the key points about ACI, uh, Max, is that as soon as you get it out of the box, within 15 to 20 minutes, you have an operational fabric. There's no more of this box-by-box configuration where you know the network manager is going, when's my switch going to be available? Because of that dynamic fabric discovery process, everything is provisioned so much quicker, and the actual witnessing of, of, of the new fabric being stood up is so much easier and so much more visible, it's a more compelling argument to, to embrace the technology. You know, we're starting to see real changes in real time uh, and, and, and we've, we're losing the days of, you know, it takes me 20, 30 minutes to configure an individual switch and, and then get it live on the network. And as we discussed also last week when we met, right, and then I will, I will be more quiet, but when you have a standalone network with individual and discrete components, you have also lots of decisions to make what routing protocol to run, uh, especially when we talk about overlay, what's in the underlay, what's in the overlay, you have choices, which makes freedom a choice, but also makes complication, right? And with ACI, as you said, things are basically uh, automated also from a bring up of the fabric and also from the establishment of that overlay uh, connectivity, which simplifies in the end the overall experience. I think something that needs to be explained here for folks that are used to doing the spend however many hours or days to get a switch stood up and added to a network, what ACI is doing beyond just that initial provisioning. Because it's one thing to build an IP fabric. Lots of us have done that in some way or another. But the interesting bit is what you guys were saying earlier about rapidly being able to bring an application onto the network and have it perform in some particular way. That means ACI as a fabric is doing more than just IP connectivity. There's other functionality there that is relevant to the business. Can you talk through that so people understand the ACI mindset? So one of the beauties I find about uh, ACI is, is the true in, in enablement of, of policy-based net networking. So whether we're bare metal, we're talking VMs, or we're talking containers with Docker, etc., uh, I can apply uh, a, a policy uh, to, to a an application, and an application is what formed from uh, either a number of, of, of services in, 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 in the sense of Docker or, or VMs or bare metal machines. But I can apply this globally uh, across the entire network, uh, and I can apply it simplistically as well. ACI gives me great power, um, and, and particularly in the use of, of this uh, particular customer, you know, the, the use of the, the micro-segmentation capabilities of ACI where I can uh, highlight and define uh, VMs uh, and containers based around meta tags, you know, uh, whether that's the, the name of a VM or a, a function of a VM or a container, I can apply this dynamic policy that no matter where where that content goes, uh, the network policy follows it. So, so what you're actually doing really there is powerful. recognizing the application as a protocol, not just based on, like normally we recognize um, apps as Ethernet port to slash, you know, such and such on this switch, this VLAN, that's the limit of my application recognition. What you're actually saying is we can now actually start saying anywhere that I see Oracle traffic, whether it's in a container, whether it's in a VM, whether it's bare metal, you know, wherever it might be in my system, I can instantly say that belongs in this micro segment of the network. Now, whether that micro segment is a VLAN, whether it's an overlay, whether it's an isolated segment, you know, whatever it is, you've got control of that. Absolutely. And, and it, uh, I think Max will 
pick up this point. It's mm. not just extending to the data center as well, you know, with the new yep. capabilities that are being born with, uh, you know, the new notion of ACI anywhere that extends mm. to, to hybrid and public cloud. So we get this much more granular control of of what the network is doing at both the overlay and the mm -hmm. underlay. It's the first time we've ever truly been able to influence packet flow uh, and I guess move away from actually caring about the ones and zeros of IP traffic to actually understanding I've got a user that wants to talk to an application and how do I obtain that best experience of talking to the application. And I would say with that to the IJP that really the real power of ACI actually has been unveiled more and more, the more we extend the policy domain out of the single data center, out of the single pod. We, we usually define pod the leaf spine topology that you build in a data center, right, in a fabric. But we de developed in the last, I would say, two and a half years, architecture like ACI multipod, which will be discussed later because that's actually what this global racing team um, adopted. But we also deployed the CI multi-site, and as JP said, uh, remote physical lift, we are going to have remote virtual lift coming in the second half of calendar year 18, and exp expansion also into the public uh, cloud that basically will allow you to extend the connectivity and the policy of ACI in different parts of the network, and all you need, and this is really the <clears throat> the part where the CI shine in terms of simplicity, simplicity, all you need for two endpoints situated on the opposite side of the world to communicate is just to going on the uh, epic or to the multi-site orchestrator if it's a multi-site environment which is the orchestrator of different epic domain and say you know web epg for this tenant needs to talk to the app epg mm. with this contract which is a policy i define i push that and at that point i don't need to worry about uh, propagating overlay information establishing peering uh, all is happening and the communication flows between endpoints wherever they are located in this ACI location with the policy, with the security policy that I configure, right? So, so this comes down to this idea of ACI as being a stretch fabric. So you can actually have ACI like in a multipod, so it becomes a data center interconnect technology because everything's in an overlay. You can have two data centers brought together. And the same logic then applies to whether you're in Google or AWS or Azure, you know, or Tencent or Weibo, you know, wherever your other public cloud's going to be, you're still using the same ACI as a platform to administrate all of that. Your intent, right, is to model your application. Your application has an interaction of the components. The interaction of the components should be orthogonal to where the endpoint that build these components are, right? I just want to say, this is how my application needs to behave. And at that point, my uh, endpoints could be in the same physical data center, could be across different data centers, could be in the public cloud, mm -hmm. wherever they are, the policy and the behavior needs to be consistent, right? And I want to configure that in a single point. And only once. And that's mm. really the, the power of this ACI uh, Anywhere story. But I think we are going to cover multipod probably even more in detail. And eventually also multi-site because it's an, uh, you know, yeah. a, a complementary architecture of multipod. And as you may have understood, Greg, <laughs> this is basically my bread and butter. That's what I focus on. And that's why I'm plugging shamefully my, my beast here. It's absolutely, I mean... So, Phil, tell me a little bit about, you know, so now that ACI is able to do this stress fabric in the multipod architecture and we know that coming down the pipeline is the hybrid cloud, was that something that the customer really wanted? Is that what they were really angling for, this sort of like the ability to have any choice wherever technology goes because they don't know? And they even hyperconverged, like we're actually seeing hyperconverged technologies come in and integrating those onto an ACI backbone is actually not immediately easy to do. 
I think it's probably fair to say that the customer didn't know what they didn't know, to tell you the truth. Um, mm. So they, you know, they, they looked at ACI, they, they liked the the concept of the actual solution and architecture, but the, it was more a kind of journey that they went on. So ACI in its earliest days, if you wanted it between two data centers, you used a, a capability called stretched fabrics, whereby you, know, you kind of stretched the, the connections from, um, from the leaves and spines between two data centers, but it was still one, uh, one uh, management domain, if you like. So mm. you know, as ACI evolved, and it evolved into, you, know, you mentioned multipod now, it evolved from stretched fabric into multipod, that gave them additional capabilities to start creating isolated fault domains. So from a, a Formula One perspective, they, they have uh, very few outage windows d- during the year for, which for, the, for them to actually make any changes. So, mm-hmm. And obviously when they're designing parts of the car, that kind of thing, anything that affects the data center is critical. So you know, if you can isolate fault domains using technologies like Multipod, then you know, it's only ever going to be beneficial for them. So you know, it was a complete journey going from, from the stretch fabric of the earliest versions through to Multipod. And you know, mm. what they're looking at now is how they then deploy this capability into a DR facility. So you know, you know, using things potentially like multi-site or ACI anywhere. or you know, remote so, kind of thing. so if you've got an ACI deployment and you're using stretch fabric that means you've got like three or four epic controllers the three you've probably got two maybe three forming a cluster and that's actually how you're managing the network and you've probably maybe you've got a fourth as a backup how was the migration then from stretch fabric to multipop so if i'm a customer who's got stretch fabric today you know which is basically two data centers look like just one big LAN. how was that process was it painful painless or did it require a fair bit of preparation did it and did it go smoothly so it's, it's a, a change in design. Um, so, you know, from just literally stretching the leaves and spines, you then need, the, need to use what they call an IPN, an interpod network. Mm. Um, so, you know, that the creation of that interpod network is a complete redesign. Uh, and how you then build out the fabric changes as well. So, you know, we were lucky in this particular customer to catch them at the point in which multipod became available and, and actually said to them, look, you know, the design we've put on the table is for a stretch fabric. However, multipod will be much more beneficial for you in, in regards to um, creating these isolated fault domains, that kind of thing. So, mm. you know, it... it, it the end result was a little bit more equipment, but you know the net result was a huge benefit in terms of operational stability, that kind of thing. And I would add that you know really what a stretch fabric is, it's a, a stretch pod, right? So it's still a single pod, and being a single pod, as Phil was saying, means it's a single networkful domain. We have a single yeah. instance of routing protocol, fabric protocol, running across my two data centers that are my stretch pod, right? Mm. We multipod, we improve that because what we want to do with multipod is maintain the single management plane and, and policy plane that is uh, achieved by having a single Epic controller cluster, but separating the pods from a networkful domain perspective. I don't want an ISIS problem that, mm. uh, you know, in data center one to propagate to data center two. Hmm. This would happen with stretch fabric because yeah. we have ISIS end to end. Now we multi pod. So you also understand yeah. that moving, yeah, sorry, just to finish my point, moving through from a stretch pod to a multi pod, it's really a, a, a big change in terms of functionality also in the network, right? So yeah. I'm glad to see that this guy were able to manage it. And probably because, as Phil said, they coded at the right play at the right time hmm. where they hmm. could still change direction, right? But to be honest, in, in my experience in these two and a half years, uh, I haven't seen many customers. I've seen customers adding an additional pod to a stretch fabric, which is a, a stretch pod, but yeah. not really separating 
you know, uh, yeah. data center connected in stretch fabric. Yeah, I see Multipod as very much a um, increasing the robustness. Like the, the the stretch fabric solution is resilient, but it, there are points of that which are kind of like there's shared fate. So if something goes wrong, then you know, uh, with the synchronization, then you'll lose that entire data center. You'll lose everything, right? Whereas when you go Correct. to multipod, there's much more robustness. You can actually have a, a a dysfunction in one part, but the other part will still be up. So it's 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 exactly. generally more robust. It's more robust, and as a consequence of that, it scales more, right? So with the yeah. multipod, we can build a single fabric because multipod is a fabric functionally, right? Which mm. scales up to 400 leaves overall, right? So now think about a, a network with 400 leaf uh, switches. It's a huge, <laughs> it's a huge net, and you can build it yeah. because you chop it up in different parts, right? And each part works like a routed network interconnected from an exter- with an external interpod network. You couldn't build a leaf spine topology with 400 leaf and be asleep uh, a night, right? Uh, that's think, essentially the point. I think the other part here is too, is the value of the reseller. So the value of White Spider to the customer in saying, yeah, we know we went to you with this, but we actually, we know what's coming down the pipeline. And because the, the reseller is focused on the technology and and the new solutions that are coming, they're actually to go back and able to advise the pipeline. Um, Phil, did you find that hard work to pump up, to stump up to the customer and go, yeah, we know we spent all this time selling you this solution and now all of a sudden we want to change it? Surprisingly, not to be honest. You know, the, yeah. the, the customer knew how closely we were working with Max and his team, hmm. um, so we were aware of functionalities quite in advance, I guess, of of, of production. Really, so we, you know, we were keeping the customer abreast of what was going on there. Um, once we explained, you know, the kind of net benefits of, of of changing the architecture, yes, there was a commercial investment, but in terms of operational benefit, it was a it was a no brainer. So, and we didn't have to take anything down. Uh, you know, create any outage, create any disruption, anything else like that to, to make this change. We were literally migrating them from a, a, a paper-based design of one type of uh, architecture and solution straight into a, you know, a, a multipod. So, you know, whilst we had everything kind of humming away, sat on a bench, you know, ready to be deployed, it was very easy for us to actually then just change that configuration, deploy the IPN equipment, um, and, and then roll that solution out. And, and it's been, a, you know, a, a massive success. And, and Phil is humble, right? But uh, I think <laughs> the reason why they were able to do that is because, as you hinted, Greg, they are very much on the front line and yeah. very aware of where we are going and what's happening. And so that's how they are very reactive and are able to steer the, tra- the, the, the customer in the right direction. I sure. also expect them to move some customers that maybe thought about doing multipod into the multi-site because they realized that the business requirements of that specific customer may be better met with multi-site versus multipod. I actually struggle a little bit with that. I think that there's too many choices inside of ACI sometimes where I know there's good reasons and technologically, but I think it's very difficult sometimes for resellers and customers to understand when there's too many choices. But, you know, it's not an insolvable problem and Cisco gives you a lot of resources to explain the difference between the two strategies and stuff like that. I want to move the conversation along. We've got a second uh, case study around a global hosting company. So why don't we start off with a quick review of what the global hosting company was doing and why they wanted to do ACI. Sorry, Gary, I was just going to touch on the point that you made just to finish off that last last, um, case study. I think... From from our point of view, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of capability. There's lots of flexibility and options within ACI. I think the the point I would convey to people listening is 
do the data collection and be as granular and detailed as possible. If you have a very clear and defined set of requirements, then the solution falls out the bottom of it very easily. You know, there's no complexity or confusion there at all. You know, any kind of confusion or complexity is because the auditing, the data collection, and you know that kind of you know the design workshops haven't been done properly. So you know, we we, we put it's a lot of emphasis. Mm. On digging deep, you know, understanding the client, understanding the pain points, the you know the the things that are you know they want to improve on, and that allows us to then you know articulate what ACI um, solution you know we would recommend. And in some cases, it might not be ACI. You know, it's it's very rare to be honest, but you know, it's all about understanding that set of requirements to a very detailed level. The golden rule of customer engagement, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> yes. So let's move the conversation on to our hosting company. I find this one fascinating because I don't normally think about hosting companies as organizations that would want a, a sort of an ACI type platform. I sometimes think of them as much more leaning towards a white box or a low cost solution. And so to, to buy ACI, they would really need to see some value there in terms of um, operational costs and, and the ability to do something. So um, how did White Spider get involved there and, and what were they trying to, what was unique about getting a hosting company onto ACI? Yeah, so it's an interesting one because this particular client wasn't a customer of White Spiders. It was uh, another channel partner who had worked with that 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 um, service provider for some time, but that particular partner didn't have the skill set to support it. So, so we went in to support them with it. Now, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of service providers would look at white boxing, but you know, you've got questions around supportability and maturity and that kind of thing. So, for this particular service provider, you know, quite a, a global brand, really. You know, one of the important things for them to look at was how do we automate things like the provision of a, a new client, a new tenant, how do you make things kind of quick and easy and efficient, which, you know, you, you can do that with OpenStack and lots of different technologies, but the supportability bit for them was, was absolutely massive. So again, we started working with them around the whole kind of data collection piece, drilling into what, you know, model of working they wanted to adopt. We ran um, very, very detailed proof of concepts for them down at Cisco Labs at Bedfont Lakes. And we went through every different iteration of configuration, every different use case that they could think of, every different client type that they had currently. Uh, and we literally worked through all of that. And this is what I was saying previously, that you know, the, the, the ACI design came out of the, the, you know, the bottom of all that due mm -hmm. diligence, really. So if you're dealing with a hosting company, one of the big things here is that they're moving from a sort of an ad hoc to this API sort of thing. Are they actually able to integrated into their organizational platform. So one of the things that I've seen a lot of hosting companies do is start to provision the network automatically. Is that what this um, these people are doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely massive for them. In all honesty, they've got their, home grown, their own homegrown uh, automation platform. And that was one of the things that we had to, to cater for when we were doing the design. So as well as doing you know, the ACI side of things, we've also got a software development team as well. You know, I'm not going to throw the, uh, the buzzword DevOps out there, but we do do a lot of um, API integration into things like uh, ACI and into Hyperflex and you know, uh, hyperconverged platforms. So what they wanted us to do was to... They wanted to reuse that automation platform that they currently got, but for us to write them an API shim that sat between that application and ACI, which allowed them to, to make changes the way that they had done previously by populating their own tool, and then our software interpreting what that was doing to just go down and, and uh, program ACI, basically. So that automated provisioning was something they were familiar with, and we were just adopting that capability into ACI. And you were also migrating them from a DFA fabric. Now, with the greatest respect in the world, the dynamic fabric automation product was uh, rough. 
and, <laughs> and a work in progress. How was that migration process for you? And how were you able to, you know, was that able to make, were you able to take the existing DFA configuration and carry it forward? Was it, was that straightforward enough? Because I imagine there's a lot of other people out there using dynamic fabric automation or DFA as well. Uh, I'll, I'll give that one to JP as he was kind of pivotal in that migration, <laughs> to be honest. I think he's got yeah. the battle scars and everything from that. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. So like Phil said uh, there, Greg, the, the devil was in the detail. So yeah. during uh, the design phase of this, we actually went in and we, we understood what their application were doing. So they were using, uh, from a network perspective, they were using uh, traditional um, uh, fabric path. So all hmm. we had to do is... Uh, ensure that a, a fabric path segment could be mapped to uh, an ACI uh, EPG or bridge domain. Mm. Uh, and just through data collection, it became very obvious that there were common function, there was common functionality inside uh, fabric path through um, uh, through DFA and what ACI was exposing. So just mm. a little bit of due diligence to say, do you know what, apples and oranges, you can make them look the same thing. Uh, yeah. The secret source is all in that, uh, all, all in that DevOps capability. Um, the, 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 there is a, I guess, a big phobia with with ACI when people come to say let's let's integrate it with existing networks. They see it as uh, because it's, it's it's hugely automated and and, and largely um, containerized in its its own design. They, they see this black box as as a big fear. You know, if I do a rooted connection to it, or do I do a layer two connection to it, and then what is the outcome of it? And it is it, we we only have to go back to basic network construction. You know, we're talking about layer two, we're talking about spanning tree, we're talking about layer three, we're talking about routing protocols, and that's all we have to treat ACI like. It understands those to a certain extent. Um, so the integration between DFA and, and ACI or any network that we've touched, you know, traditional networking, has all gone seamlessly. You know, touch wood, it's yeah. it's, it's it's all gone flawlessly. Um, right. So I think I think that's you know a great credit to to what the the Boyd and Cisco have done with ACI. And then back to my original point, ACI is a network. It's not a magic voodoo, right? So, you know, <laughs> that people should be scared of, right? It's a network, and this migration, yep. public party, you come from a spanning tree-based network, from a VPC-based network, God forbid, from a Cisco, non-Cisco network. Uh, there are migration to ACI that uh, we do day in and day out because despite what we would like to believe, there is no such a thing as a greenfield, right? Greenfield mm -hmm. does not, does not, do not exist. Uh, all the customers have a data center that they need to, if they adopt ACI, they need to migrate application from the existing data yeah. center to ACI. I think one of the things here is that there's actually, the, in the case study that relates to this, was just how big this data center was. There's 1,200 racks. So these people must have a really big fabric path solution and migrating that must have been a real tough one, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. And the idea that you're actually able to do that and, and you've also been building some cost capabilities in that is actually, it must have been a really big project. Uh, so, so I think roughly it, it took us about a year. If um, I'm, I'm not wrong, Phil, to you know, from design to to implementation, it's, it's it's taken roughly a year. But we've been able to embrace those capabilities of of ACI. So, you know, traditionally inside the data center, we'd go and buy huge chassis-based mm -hmm. switches, you now eight, eighteen line car beasts. Um, and we stepped away from that. We said, you know what? I'm not comfortable doing that inside the data center anymore. If I lose one of these big switches, I lose my whole data center. So we deployed Multiplod inside the data center. And we looked at bite-sized chunks and said, do you know what? This hole, this hole, and this hole can all be part of one pod. And then we'll go this hole, this hole, and this hole will be another pod. So it allowed that hosting customer to, to phase the migration. It wasn't Big Bang. It yep. was, you know, 
extremely controlled and we can say, right, we're moving off DFA or we're moving off a traditional network now and we're moving on to ACI. And the outcome of it was entirely measurable. It's, it's a whole different thing when you say, you know, we're doing some upgrades to our network and 20% of the data center will be out as opposed to saying the whole company will shut down this weekend because of a network upgrade. Absolutely. One of my favorite functions inside ACI is how you can control that, that upgrade capability because mm. we're now dealing with a policy-based network that is relatively aware of, of you know, the hardware devices that are, cater, that are connected to it. I can now define a policy to say, do you know what? On, on this night, I'm going to upgrade this leaf and spine. Uh, and, and I can do that pro probably for, 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 for some people. They, they probably think it's a precarious, but I can do that without actually being at the command prompt or actually mm. at the box and know that ACI is recovery capabilities in it to, uh, mm. to do the upgrade capability. So Max, this ACI pod idea is the idea that there's one data center, but you're going to have smaller parts of it individual. So in the same way that you introduce the, rob the robustness of multi-site, this multipod says, why don't I have multiple sites inside of a single data center? And that's the ACI multipod architecture. That is correct. Actually, the number one use case why Multipod was built was to basically address uh, chopping a large fabric into a single physical location. That center location is smaller units, right? And manage them centrally, but make them more resilient. Now, the reality is always never what you expected. And the, I would say in my experience, 90% of the customer that deploy Multipod, they did it to interconnect pods that represent physical data centers. And for that, we also now have multi-site, which is, a, I would say, a different way of doing it, a better way to separate also the management domain, because we multi-site, we have different epic domains interconnected with each other. But again, the difference in positioning one architecture versus the other is also the use case. Right? If I really want to operate my data center as a single logical entity, mm -hmm. active, active deployment, Multipod shines because of its simplicity. If I want to have complete isolation, have a disaster recovery use case, I want to ensure that no matter what happened in my main data center, whatever I do in my main data center, I will never going to affect my disaster recovery site. Otherwise, I don't have a disaster recovery site. And that's where multi-site comes to the rescue. And the two can be from the next upcoming release 3.2, they will be able to be combined together, click multipod, and connect it with a disaster recovery site using multi-site, right? And this, in my opinion, Max opinion, this hierarchical will be very successful because there are many customers already waiting. Yeah, I had some personal experience with DFA and I just imagine that ACI is so much better than this because it's really built to scale up. To, it was built to do that from the ground up, I think. And it's had a couple of years to, for ACI to mature and stabilize. But if, if your people are out there listening to this and thinking, you know, we've got some fabric path and we've got some DFA on top of that, there is a way of moving forward that doesn't actually mean, you know, tear the data center down and shut it down for a couple of days while we flip in a new network. There's actually a migration path here with Multipod, which was the key takeaway that I got from this from this case study. Absolutely. Well, White Spider, guys, I I, I want to uh, talk about something that Cisco Live, or that was announced at Cisco Live last year, which is digital network architecture, and then specifically software-defined access. I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at our show notes here. I can tell that there's some actual technology there because it seemed like it was mostly... Uncle Chuck talking about cool things that were going to happen, but then uh, then we actually had some products announced. And uh, could you give us an overview of SDA, what software-defined access is? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a high level. Um, 
I mean, first of all, I think it speaks volumes to the maturity of of ACI, you know, that policy-based approach, whereby SD Access is adopting that same kind of overlay-based um, single point of orchestration using a controller to to configure and um, and and build out your, your your LAN, basically. So, you know, we have... And, and again, just so we're clear, SDA is not tied to ACI directly, but but again, inspired by the success of ACI, you're saying? That's a good question. It's not tied to it at all, but other than from a, uh, um, you know, the approach is very similar. Mm. You know, SD Access uses VXLAN overlays, the same as ACI uses VXLAN overlays, that kind of thing. They both have two different controllers. SD Access, you orchestrate the the overlay using DNA Center, DNAC, um, and um, there's, you know, you see you can... SD Access is supported on, you know, catalyst switches. It's supported on uh, access points, controllers, that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it's just moving us closer to that realm of one policy to rule them all, isn't it? You know, whereby, yeah. you know, if we can start to tag traffic at the access layer and we have the ability with an ACI to to kind of uh, micro-segment, uh, you know, at the application layer, you know, we can, you know, pass that information from, you know, one end of the network from a branch all the way across the WAN and maintain network segmentation. You know, it's one of the things that a lot of our customers are talking about with things like ransomware and crimeware, you know, a lot of malware that's about. If they can provide that network segmentation, which thing, you know, which SD access can do, um, then, you know, there's a huge benefit there. So from yeah. a technology perspective, it's a it's a different approach. Um, but using I'm always in favor of having malware so that when you get infected, you can actually get some budget to fix it. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's the only way you're ever going to get any. You know, if you prevent it from happening, you're never going to get any budget. (laughs) Phil, I wanted to follow up on on, on the overlay point you made about it being uh, VXLAN. I thought uh, Lisp was tied up in it and it was part of the tunneling for SD access? Yeah, so Lisp is used for mapping endpoints, you know. So, you know, there's a different technology used within ACI for mapping endpoints. Um, but, yeah, Lisp is used to identify where that endpoint is, you know, the, well, the endpoint and whereabouts it resides. So, yeah, Lisp is, is, is part of that control plane for, for endpoint mapping. And I would add, uh, you know, it, uh, in ACI, we are using Lisp as well, because if you think about the spine, the, the, the mapping database in the spines contains the list of all the endpoints discovered in the fabric. When a leaf doesn't know where an endpoint is, he sends the packet to the spine, which has the database. So it's an hardware implementation of Lisp. So sometimes mm. it seems that Cisco does things randomly, right? But there is a, a, there is a plan behind all this, right? SDA, ACI, they're both identity-based network. The first thing you do, an endpoint, a user comes in in the fabric, is going to be classified in a group. An application connects to the data center is going to be uh, classified and put in an EPG, which is an endpoint group. The goal here, we talk, we talk about ACI anywhere earlier, but here is the talk about ACI anywhere means also extending the policy domain and the security domain between the different, what we used to call pins, planes in the network, the campus, the data center, and allow an end-to-end policy extension so that I can granularly say this endpoint that's connected to the access of the campus is this user and he can have access to this application which is sitting in the data center and I define that policy once and that policy follows the, the traffic uh, across the campus into the data center, right? That's the goal and the vision behind uh, de- developing this uh, similar, if you want, fabric architecture. 
okay, the identity-based technology and those ideas have been around for a while with and implemented with various levels of success by various uh, vendors who have all had their different approaches. Some of it's been embedded in silicon. Some of it's been you know, policy and then steering traffic around the network, which sounds more like what we're dealing with here with SDA. Uh, can can we talk about what the main components are that comprise SD Access? So that as an engineer is trying to figure out how they would map policy to a user and uh, maybe the applications they're using, they can see how this all would come together. Yeah, sure. So I guess the main two components, well, three components of it, really. So there's the controller on which we define policy. That's the DNAC. Um, we use ICE, the identity services engine, for all of the uh, um, authentication, assigning and attaching people to groups. So that uses the concept of SGTs, which uh, I guess you know people from back in the day remember it as security group tags, but they're now scalable group tags. So there's SGTs that are attached to users. <laughs> Of course Absolutely. they are. <laughs> so the SGTs yeah. are attached to the users, and you know you can pass that 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 tag, you know, uh, throughout the, the the SD access overlay. You know, if you don't have um, a a WAN or a um, uh, a network that supports SGTs, you can transport them across, and those are obviously um, used in the data center as well. So, so the SGTs really, uh, you know, the, the the tagging of of identity are you know the, the kind of the piece that that. that I guess holds it all together, really. So, you know, policy is defined based on what that tag is and, you know, the users that apply to, you know, the tags that applies to those users, ultimately. So the, the tag then, is that is that carried in a field in an IP packet somewhere? It is, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and therefore, does that mean I have to have a switch with an ASIC that can uh, read that tag as the packet flows through it? So uh, if you have um, SGT uh, switches that support SGT, then obviously segmentation is, is applied based on that. But you know, if you want to take those SGTs you know, out, outside of SD access, for example, then you can just use VRF Lite and just pass the, the, the tags using VRF Lite. So you know, they can be transported over a network that don't support tags, but the tag remains um, um, intact. Got it. Okay. So, uh, so in fairness, the, the best way this is going to work is on my... My, my largely Cisco network that I've got deployed. So I'm going to have catalyst switches. I've got ICE, as you mentioned. I've got the, um, the right Cisco controller. And then I build policy on top of that. And all that together uh, allows me to build a system that comprises SD access. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly it. You know, the components are there. You know, controller, okay. uh, identity engine in, in, in the ICE, and the, you know, the supported equipment, you know, the Nexus, the Catalyst, the uh, ISRs, ASRs, that kind of thing. That then gives you a supported infrastructure for you to then apply SD access. So to do the same types of orchestration we do in the data center, we can then apply that across the, the campus land and, you know, kind of beyond. And I would add that the ICE with, uh, is actually already, we are, this is a shipping solution we have that where ICE... Uh, interact with the uh, Epic, right, to ensure, again, consistency of uh, treatment of traffic when you move from the campus into the data center, right? Because, again, the goal is to extend the same policy domain in different parts of the network, right? Not only between data center, but also between data center and campus. Got it. Okay. Now, now we mentioned the controller aspect of this. Uh, Do I need to use DNAC, the uh, Digital Network Architecture Center, or are there other ways that I could create policy if I didn't want to use DNAC? Um, so NetConf, you know, is, that's one of the options you can use, you know, so, um, you know, providing the, you know, the switches support that a lot of the, you know, the, um, uh, the, the configuration and, and management is done either using Net, uh, RESTConf, NetConf, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you can, you know, if you're familiar with RESTful APIs, then, you know, migrating that 
you know, your, your experience there to Netconf and RESTConf, you can obviously, you know, can build out policies using that. Obviously, the supported way, the right way, the best practice way is to use the, the DNA center. And, you know, there's a lot of capability around that platform, to be honest. So I think, you know, from our point of view, from a reseller point of view, you know, we'd recommend using that approach, really. Mm. All right. So if I'm a Cisco customer, what switches do I need to have to support SD access? Um, I'm assuming what I need to be able to deal with Lisp. I need to be able to deal with, I was going to say secure group tags, scalable group tags. Um, and, and, and what else? So what, to, what, again, what hardware would I need to have in house? So um, obviously it's hardware and software specific. So, you know, the, the, the software version matters and obviously additional capability will become, you know, uh, available and mature with the newer software versions. But in terms of hardware, the, the CAT 3850, the 93, the 95, the CAT 68, um, I think the Nexus 77 with the M3 cards, uh, ASR, ASR 1000, ISR 4000, even the cloud services router, they're all kind of supported components within that SDA framework. So mostly fairly recent iterations is what I'm, what yeah, I'm seeing yeah, here. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Um, and, and then what, so what happens when I've got, you know, I've still got some Catalyst 3750s that I've been running for years and years now, but they're still good enough for me and I don't want to have to replace them. Is there any way those fit into this scheme? Yeah, you just connect to them as a, a you know, for using border nodes, basically. So it can be, you know, you, you connect to a legacy network using, you know, the same as you would do with ACI, um, ultimately. So you can still connect legacy networks to it. Hmm. All right, so so I've got this thing. I've bought SD access, or I've got all the pieces and parts that I need to to enable SD access. Now we, we talked earlier about how ACI really changes your workflow and how you do network operations and provisioning. Is, is there a similar kind of change here, where there's um, you know kind of a, a, a different way of thinking about my network when I'm running SD access? I think first and foremost, it's got to be that that operational side, hasn't it? You know, if you think in the data center, when we had Nexus, you know, seven Ks, five Ks, and two Ks, where we had the fabric extender, you know, you, we kind of reduced the number of touch points there straight away, and then with ACI, you know, we reduced the number of touch points even further. So, in a campus land, you can have hundreds of of thirty eight fifties, you know, thirty seven fifties, that kind of thing. So, making changes at scale on that size of network is considerable. You know, you need massive uh, outage windows to make those changes. So being able to do that from a policy perspective on a controller to make a, a you know a large scale, let's say a security change or a management change or a monitoring change, do that once from the controller, push that mm-hmm. down to your SD access fabric, then you know the, the operational benefit is is enormous. Uh, um, okay. okay. So again, going back to the controller aspect of it, then in other words, I can touch the controller and it pushes policy across the network to all the different network devices at once rather than all right the business needs x and now i got to figure out in my head what exactly i might do with access lists or segmentation and then build all this stuff by hand switch by switch and router by router to make it happen i instead go to the controller and tell the controller what i'm trying to achieve and the controller pushes all of that policy down into the network for me Absolutely, yeah. You create the policy on the controller, um, and that policy, you know, can be made up of any different number of of, of capabilities. You know, from a from a LAN perspective, you know, you create that policy once you push that down, make a change to the policy at any point. It's then pushed down to the devices or um, you know the group of devices that you think it applies to. So you know, the controller is everything, and uh, you know, the policy sat on top of that is 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 your kind of one place of uh, of control, really. 
So, okay. So when the business comes at me and says that we need to make some kind of a change, whatever it is, is that the sort of a change that I can push in real time? Or is it another one of those things where I should probably be doing that through a maintenance window? It depends on the change, doesn't it? You know, some some changes that you make to a network, you, you, you know, when, when you look at it, it's not going to be service affecting. You know, if we're changing things like, you know, kind of management access or things like that, then, you know, typically they're, they're kind of, they contain some degree of risk, doesn't everything, you know, when we're in networking. But, um, <laughs> you know, there's going to be some changes if you're changing ACLs, if you're changing routing protocols, that kind of thing, then, you know, you're going to change all of that in, in, in some kind of outage window. But because you're changing lots of things at once, you know, the kind of key takeaway is the outage window is much smaller because you don't have to touch it one at a time you're you're hitting it all at at the same time and in an automated way because the controller handles all of the, the tedious what what would have been a bunch of keystrokes and and uh checkpoints um now the controller is making that go and i assume you can see what you've done you've got like a closed loop through the controller where you've got kind of like that that bird's eye view of the entire network so you can see what you're changing, but if you think about when you do make changes, you know, if you think about that process whereby you, you, you raise a change request and in that change request you have to articulate all of the things that you're going to touch. You know, very often you actually, you know, you build out the configuration that you're going to apply. And if you're touching 30 devices, you've got to repeat that several times. Um, the potential for error, finger trouble, that kind of thing is, 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 is huge. So we're also reducing the the potential for error in a change window as well. So as long as we're making it smaller, we're making it quicker, and we're making it more efficient by not introducing you know, potential issues ultimately. So Phil, I've got this thing up and running. I'm able to push policy into the network and, and do it as a whole. Now I want to kind of uh, understand what's going on. So this has gone from just providing connectivity to really pushing policy into the network that can um, c- control how a user is experiencing the network. Do I get to, to to see that or understand that or gain some insight into what the user is experiencing as they're on the network now? Kind of like application performance management, but more so since that's a, a huge movement in IT right now. Yes, yeah, so we, we, we have the ability to look at a user's behavior. You know, we can drill into that. You know, we can look at where a user is connecting from, the type of device they're connecting from, you know, where they move around in the network, if they're hopping from, you know, from wired to wireless, you know, those kinds of things. What's the experience like when they move around that? You know, we have the ability to view all of that, um, the, the kind of... Uh, uh, the types of um, experience that they have, all of that is, is, is part and parcel of wrapped up into DNA center. Ultimately, that's all part of the control of visibility. You, you just said something really interesting there. You, you can follow the user if they hop from wire to wireless. Now, that is that says a, a ton. It really implies so much of what's happening here because... So one question about that is a user, would you track that user even if they shift endpoints like they are on their phone at one point and then they, you know, they're back at their desk and they're on their workstation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's all part of ICE, isn't it? So, you know, the ability for a, a user to connect to a wireless access point uh, or, or be on a, you know, a, a wired laptop and then, you know, move off that, connect to a wireless access point, you know, you, you're re-authenticating to the wireless network, aren't you? So the, the visibility within ICE, you know, gives you that degree of... Uh, um, of insight into a user's behavior, ultimately. And that's what's taken us beyond what these solutions felt like maybe 10 years ago, 
where keeping track of someone was just, it was almost impossible because really it was trying to read through flows to, to infer where a user was. You didn't really have the tagging. And so keeping track of an individual was was really hard unless you had just excellent directory services integration, which uh, just you, you didn't so often. All right, so this is SD Access, which is a security um, uh, implication here. Do Does this help me with malware and uh, you know other kinds of, of, of breaches, keeping them contained? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, network segmentation is probably the biggest part of this, and it's certainly something that our customers are asking us about. You know, I, I think I mentioned uh, earlier, you know, the, the ability to segment traffic based on, you know, what you need access to. You know, all users don't need access to all services, and all services don't need access to all other services. So, you know, by using SGTs and giving you granular segmentation, you know, it allows you to really restrict um, the, the impact of any kind of breach or any kind of malware outbreak or anything like that. So, you know, the, the, the power of ICE, you know, giving you that ability to, to um, classify and categorize someone based on their um, user type and, and, and their role, um, you know, it allows you to really be very granular. Um, so, you know, the knock-on effect of that is that you, you have a much lower impact from a security breach, ultimately. And how did, when you implement ICE, one of the challenges has always been that edge where workstations meet the Ethernet port or workstations connect to the wireless. Is that working sufficiently does it require users to change their behavior with the you know with the way technology has come in the last five years here cisco's really been focusing on making this technology work um, reliably and predictably is, is that actually the case um, and the customers don't have to change what they're doing or do we actually have to ask them to do something different no, you're right. I mean, the, the users don't have to do anything. I think the technology is quite mature now. You know, mm. in the you know we have a supplicant on the on the device that allows us to authenticate regardless of the medium we're connecting to. So whether that's wired or wireless, you know, we've got the ability to a identify ourselves and the equipment that we're that we're connecting to. It goes off and you know carries out some kind of posture assessment and authorizes us and gives us a, a role on the network. You know, whether that assigns us to a VRF or it assigns us to a VLAN or or something else. You know, that that is quite mature technology and capability. So, you know, it, it's all part of this identity piece, isn't it? Most folks that have, that would, would be interested in this product, they've got a campus network of some kind already. They've got Wi-Fi deployed and, and so on. Do I, can, can I retrofit SD access to what I've got or do I have to be you really thinking about this when it's Greenfield, I've got a new building going up and, and hey, maybe it's time for SD access now? I think both are very relevant use cases, Ethan, to be honest. You know, we're talking to clients now that have got 3750 networks in, you know, 15, 18 offices, that kind of thing. You know, how do we migrate them from a legacy way of core distribution access onto uh, an overlay-based SD access environment? You know, clearly, you know, the, the easiest way of doing this is Greenfield. You know, you've got no real outage to contend with. Um, but there's also quite a, a seamless and, and granular migration plan from legacy environments. So if you're kind of doing the kind of two-tier three-tier type model and you want to migrate segments across, you can create that overlay, you know, in a kind of piecemeal fashion. So you can migrate a floor at a time or you can migrate, you know, um, you know, even less than that, you can migrate mm -hmm. pods at a time if you like. Well, I think we're getting to the end of the discussion. I think we've pretty much covered over, you know, the differences between the two possible ACI architectures, the multi-pod and the multi-site. And then we've talked a lot about SD access and um, somewhat to my surprise that there is a link between the two technologies, how SD access and ACI do share some technology foundations going on the middle. But Phil, I think there's a, do you want to wrap those up and summarize those? Like when you're working with customers, is there something or a common plan, you know, message that everybody goes, this is what I want? 
Yeah, I think just to kind of summarise, you know, it's exciting times, isn't it? You know, we've we've spoken about two technologies there that share the same kind of principle around policy creation and orchestration, one in the data centre, one at the campus land. You know, from our point of view, you know, we're looking for one policy to rule them all. And I think that's where the next kind of step change will occur. So, you know, once we can define a single policy that flows all the way from data centre through to, a, you know, an endpoint, then, you know, we've reached kind of network utopia, haven't we, from an operational point of view. So, you know, we're almost yeah. there now and, you yeah. know, the technology's proven. It's taken a few years for us to get there, to get this idea of software over the network and, you know, to, ta- to take away some of this, you know, the artisanal hipster methodology of, you know, hand configuring everything. But, you know, the, I think we're starting to see some real momentum grow in the reseller channel to, to get this done and to make it happen. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, you know, this is mature technology. It's, you know, obviously SDX is quite new, but ACI, mature technology, very robust. You know, you mentioned earlier about it being boring. Boring's good. We want boring. We don't want exciting outages that have been catastrophic. You know, we want nice, stable, quiet networks, don't we? We want a bit of quiet, quiet yeah. time. Yeah, we go to work so we can have beer vouchers so we can go home and drink them. That's, that's the, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go around the table and thank our guests today. So, Jonathan, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, so uh, we can be reached at uh, www.whitespider.eu. Um, I'm also directly contactable. Uh, my email is jonathan.perosi at whitespider.eu. And Phil? Yep, the same website, whitespider.eu, and uh, directly contact me. And, and feel free, any questions around ACI, uh, SD Access, DNAC, anything like that, it's phil.lees at whitespider.eu. And thanks to White Spider for coming on and sponsoring this show today um, because it's because of them we're actually be able to put this show together and talk about them. And remember that they have a website. It's www.whitespider.eu slash pp. And we actually went over some of the case studies that they've published, and that's what we've talked about today. So if you want to know more about White Spider and perhaps engage them uh, to you know help you with your Cisco ACI and your Cisco SD access, that's the place to go and start. And Max, why don't you also thank, uh, tell people a little bit where they can find you on the internet? Absolutely. First of all, Greg, thanks for inviting me here. Thanks for the White Spider guys. Yeah. Uh, they can find me. They can. Co- I can be contacted through email, ardika at cisco.com. Uh, I am on Twitter at Max Ardika. And I will, for people that are Cisco Live aficionados, I will be in Barcelona uh, in a couple of weeks presenting a couple of sessions about multi-pod and multi-site. And for the U.S.-based customer, I will be also in Orlando next June at Cisco Live Orlando. So you can come over and mm-hmm. introduce yourself and find me presenting all these exciting technologies and architectures. Ah, uh, Orlando, the land of hot and sweaty. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thanks so much to White Spider for sponsoring today's show and for Cisco for providing this information. As always, you can find this and much more fine, free quality information on the Packet Pushes website, including our news and blog site at packetpushes.net slash archives. Of course, we have Twitter accounts at Packet Pushes. We're on the LinkedIn where you can follow us and we're even on the Facebook. But if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it would be so much so helpful if you could just uh, give us a rating, give us a like, because Apple Podcasts is basically where we find the next generation of network engineers to spread the messaging of how fantastic networking is. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.